Hello, welcome to the podcast. Today, it's just myself and I'm joined by Paul Smith, who is the global solution owner for trade and revenue growth management at SAP. Easy for me to say. I know what you're thinking, what does that mean? Well, watch the podcast and you will find out. Normally with the podcast, we like to get people into our office, have a see the whites of their eyes and have a face-to-face conversation. However, in the world of business, that's not always possible. And today, we're Spectrum Digital and we are embracing digital. So Paul is gonna be dialing in remotely from down south. Request from me for your help. We are now over 100 subscribers. I've set myself the target of 200 subscribers by Christmas. So please, 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 if you're watching this and you're not a subscriber, please hit the button and help us get there. Right, intro's done. Welcome to Tomorrow's Workplace Today. Welcome to the podcast, Paul Smith. Not not the designer, but... Uh, I'm sure, well, I'll get your views on design later on, but um, you, for, for listeners, watchers, Paul, do you want to um, give a bit of an instruction to who you are and what you do? Yeah, fantastic. Thank you, Steve. And thank you very much for having me on the podcast. But yeah, Paul Smith, I'm the uh, global solution owner for trade and revenue management for SAP, which means I'm, I'm responsible for our world of trade management, revenue growth, and uh, a suite of products, kind of existing products, and new products that we're building and co-innovating with customers. So, but yeah, very pleased to be here. Excellent. Now, thank you for coming on. Um, obviously, SAP is a, is a brand that most people will know and be aware of. But for maybe for those few that don't, do you want to just give an, an intro into who SAP are and what what they do? Yeah. So, SAP, um, German software company, fifty years old this year. It's Europe's largest software company, and it's, really- it's the it is so and it's the world's largest erp vendor so as an example of that i mean most people know sap for kind of owning all of the back end of the erp everything in terms of financial processing hygiene um what it does in terms of supply chain what it does in terms of kind of uh, warehousing um but it's much broader than that as well it runs into business networks it runs into customer experience it runs into um hr and processes like handling expenses with uh, our company concur i mean in fact nine out of ten of the world's consumer product goods companies use sap somewhere in their environment and i sit within the consumer products industry business unit i care about um, those cp companies that are producing products and then selling them on to retailers wherever those retailers are in the world whether it's supermarkets with modern trade or whether it's mom and pop shops with traditional trade or whether it's my, even marketplaces so it's basically my role is how do manufacturers sell their products to retailers and do it in a way that is um, profitable for both parties as well so but and also so- doing that in a, doing that in a sustainable way because Everything we do in SAP is infused with SAP's vision of helping the world run better and improve people's lives. Excellent. Okay. So, and talk about your your segment then. So, tr- trade and rev- revenue growth management. Bring that to yeah. life for people. What does that mean? Yeah. So, what it means, fortunately, we can all as consumers relate to the end part of trade management and revenue growth. And that happens when you walk into any supermarket or retail store and you suddenly realize that your favorite crisps or favorite potato chips, depending on which part of the world you're watching this, or your favorite cereal or your favorite soup is on an end cap prominently displayed at a promotional price. And actually what's driving that is a trade promotion agreement between the manufacturer and that retail partner. 
And in the current world of kind of scarcity, supply chain uh, impacts and uh, inflationary pressures, it's never been more relevant. I mean, it's a process that's existed between CP and retail for decades. And traditionally, people have done this with huge piles of spreadsheets. But certainly in the last 20 years, more and more people have been looking to automate it, to bring processes and systems in place. Um, because if you look at the volume of sales that happen, for a CP company, most CP companies spend somewhere between 16 and 24% of their entire gross sales revenue on the rebates they give back to retailers as a result of these promotional agreements. So it's big money. I mean, if we're, when you're talking with like global tier one CP companies, you know, those that are easily selling well north of like a billion US dollars or even five billion or even higher than that, um, spending 16 to 24% of that gross sales revenue is a big number. And that means any any amount of ability to influence that, to make it more profitable, to grow it, is of foundational importance to CP companies in terms of maintaining their growth going forward. You know, it always amazes me when you speak to big companies that they've still got core processes worth a lot of money still running on spreadsheets and bits of paper being passed back and forth. Yeah. Is, that, is that what you see? It's absolutely what we see. And sometimes what you find is the, the big CP companies will uh, automate processes and put tools in in their larger markets. And then sometimes some of their smaller markets are still stuck with planning on spreadsheets so or trying to cobble something together. And as a result, organizations often, market by market, sometimes even brand by brand, can operate very differently. Um, mm. And that is inefficient for those businesses and those organizations. But it's also indicative of these are difficult processes for people to get right end to end. So they take a lot of time and investment and the right selection of products to be able to make those run end to end as smoothly as possible. I mean, you know, that's something that's a, it's what people in SAP get out of bed for is to be able to help people with those end to end processes so that there's not just this complete hodgepodge and bits of wet string and bits of, we tried experimenting with this Python script over here to try and <laughs> move this data over there. And we've got these spreadsheets, but they're all in a different format. Um, what we try and do in the world of trading review growth management is come up with a consistent set of processes. And whether that's defining a globally applicable template for how promotions are executed, or coming up with a kind of a, a main template and then a whole set of regional archetypes that cope with the variations mm. in different parts of the world. So some markets, huge amount of mom and pop shops. So you go somewhere like Latin America. Um, and you're somebody like Coca-Cola, they've got over a million retailers that they actually sell their product to. So they've got a small set of retailers that are big supermarket chains. Yeah. But for them, 80, over 80% of their business is through small corner stores. So you've, got to, wow. yeah. so you've got to work out how you promote product to them, how you keep your cost of sales down to them. And some of that is addressed by solutions like B2B Commerce. So, but the amount of revenue in a CP company goes through B2B commerce versus the amount of revenue goes through trade management, mm. very, 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 very different. You know, it's, it's, it's a fraction. So the trade yeah. management process is uh, what drives most of the sales revenue for CP companies. So is this one software solution that you're talking about here then, that, that, that manages this end-to-end -end process? And if, if so, what does that look like high level what does the process step us through the process yeah step through the process it's um it's usually a combination of bits of software so 
Um, at the, at the very top end, it's a very data-led process. So you need mm -hmm. kind of like an analytics solution to help you um, analyze usually huge amounts of data, whether that's everything from consumer insight or to analytics for kind of post-event reporting or pre-event analysis about where should we promote, how should we promote, how deeply should we promote. Um, but then it quickly moves into the world of needing systems that the uh, manufacturing and supply chain side eventually have to contribute to, to produce a demand plan. So all of these CP companies will have demand planners and they'll be using tools like integrated business planning to be able to determine what is their forecast this month for how much product is going to shift to which uh, through which sales channels. So and that's all dependent on what promotions they're pushing in what markets at what point in time. Well, usually it starts with the demand team looking at their historical volume a little bit of human intelligence and yeah. some guesstimation to say, actually, we know because of seasonality effects, we're coming into Q4, we're coming into the festive period. We know certain mm -hmm. lines will move more than others. Therefore, we saw the trend last year. We're anticipating X or Y. So they produce yeah. a, demand, a baseline forecast in a demand plan. That then generally flows into a trade management system. And the trade management system, the button is passed to the sales team and the sales team then having been given what the demand team think is going to be the amount of requested volume. Um, the sales team's mission is to push that up as high as possible and make it as profitable as possible. So a good outcome in a CP company is that you uplift the demand plan and that you also make it more profitable. So they have to have a whole suite of tools that starts from that baseline forecast and says, well, actually, if we promote a certain price pack architecture size of mince pies for mm -hmm. the festive period, and we discount it by 30% for a two-week period in a certain range of stores, we know we'll drive more demand. Um, but equally, they also want that to be data informed from historical data and forecasted sales data, because when you're creating a promotion, you want to know, is it going to be successful or not? Because in CP companies, somewhere between 50 and 60% of promotions are not profitable. So, which is also why loads of data and analytics and uh, ability to do, even do things like compare different possible scenarios. So, and even automatically compare different scenarios. Say, mm. um, you know, you can give the system a set of boundary conditions and say, right, this is my maximum discount. This is my minimum discount. These are the things I want you to consider. Do we want a feature? Do we want a display? Do we just want discounting? Um, what price points and what steps between price points do we want? And then ask the system to make recommendations to you about what might be better promotions to run in better time periods for which assortment of products. You know, you can get to that level of sophistication as well. Presumably all that is kind of machine learning driven. Yeah, loads of it very much driven by machine learning and forecasting and looking for subtleties in those patterns, but doing it to some extent at scale. And in some cases, you're consuming data from third parties like IRI or Nielsen, so kind of market-based okay. data. Yep. Some of the more sophisticated customers will be consuming um, POS data and then kind of cleansing it, harmonizing it, and having a really accurate forecast. And some people are operating in markets where that data doesn't exist or they can't access it. So all they know is what volume of product did they shift this time last year. So you mm. can have shipment-based forecasts, consumption-based forecasts, and then kind of deeper consumption-based forecast based on POS data. So there's even different levels of sophistication within there. And even when somebody's created all these promotions and set them running, 
It's then down to the field sales teams to work with their retail store execution capabilities about what stores you're going to visit, what stores are at risk of being out of stock, what stores do we think we can uplift more product to, um, and just maintaining the relationship between the manufacturing brand and the owner of that store. So, and some of that is having the visibility to know what promotions are coming up, what promotions are currently running, and arming the field sales teams with the ability to compliance check the store to make sure that products that are on promotion are actually on promotion at the right price point in the right place in the store. So because if a retailer accepts the terms of promotional agreement and doesn't execute them, well, should the question is, should they be rebated to the rebate that they they will then request? Yeah, so, that's a fair point. Okay, so we've, we've, we've understood a demand forecast. We've involved the sales guys who then get the task of how do you make that demand bigger and more profitable they come up with various promotional activities to achieve that outcome what happens next off the back of that so well off the back of that the promotions get executed field table field sales teams will check the execution of those promotions ultimately once the promotion is completed the retailer returns a whole set of claims paperwork back to the original manufacturer and says this volume of product based on these promotional terms, we would like to be rebated the amount that we've committed to. And then it arrives with the accounts receivables team. And the accounts receivables team, historically, in a big CP company, there is sometimes a floor of people in accounts receivables whose job is to download that paperwork from the retailer or have it emailed to them, mm-hmm. to pour through it manually, and then and then try and work out by hunting manually through their trade promotion system, which promotional agreement was that claim related to, do the line items match, do the volumes match, do the product codes match, and then try and process that claim and resolve any discrepancies. Usually, industry standard, it takes 40 to 50 days on receipt of that paperwork back from the manufacturer to being able to uh, pay out on that claim and settle it against the accrual balances that are sitting in the finance system. That's, That's it for each retailer. Or, well, I suppose it depends on the yeah. size of the retailer. Depends on the size of the retailer. And, and literally every claim, will, every promotion will generate a claim. So if somebody's running, you know, 30,000 promotions, they're going to have at least 30,000 claims. Usually promotions can drive more than one claim as well. So it's a vast amount of paperwork. There are some CP companies processing hundreds of thousands and some of them edging into millions of claims in any one financial year. And it's for large, they're ultimately for large sums of money as well. Mm. So Yeah, so there's a time saving here. There's a, a resource saving. And is there, a, is there an accuracy element to this as well? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, this is an area where we've been looking at innovating new product, completely kind of cloud native product to make it quick and easy for people to adopt, to be able to automate more of that claims process, to be able to automatically read that claims data coming in using machine learning and AI and using things like OCR, because sometimes data doesn't arrive in a structured form. It doesn't arrive in a spreadsheet. Often it arrives in a PDF or a Word document, Mm, which means... As we do with expense processing in Concur, you've got to be able to scan through the structure of that, pick out the right data points, put it into a logical format, and then automatically hunt through the trade management platform and kind of go, right, we know it was for this retailer on these dates. We've got some other identifying information. We know what products were in there. Can we find a promotion that matches it? And so, yeah, so we created a whole new solution called SAP Intelligent Trade Times Management that specifically does that. 
And the aim was to take that 40 or 50 days down to a quarter, which kind of massively improves the financial efficiency of the uh, CP company, um, liberates spend on their balance sheet, um, and effectively reducing their day's deductions outstanding. Um, but what we're really trying to do is kind of liberate people from having to do basically use a swivel chair interface from trying to do all of that manual legwork in matching mm. and try and use AI to automate as much of that process as possible. We've got, we've got a vision of in future, we want that to be completely um, touch free. So mm. and, and humans will only kind of deal with the exceptions that get thrown out because there's always there's always going to be exceptions. So yeah. all the more difficult cases where there's some negotiation that needs to be done again with the retailer. Uh, that's really where the claims analyst needs to be spending their time because that's the higher value bit. And actually, what we find is savvy retailers know that CP companies can't keep up with the paperwork. So they have a threshold. You know, it might be $1,000, might be $2,000. So you suddenly see lots and lots of smaller claims come that they will test that, that cap and try and slip as many claims as they can in under that cap. It's more paperwork for everybody. But if those claims just go, get passed yes. straight through, that's much easier to get paid, right? So, so a lot of CP companies are possibly paying for things that maybe they shouldn't need to. Letting so, out the industry secrets here, Paul. I like it. Absolutely. Here's, here's, the, here's, the, here's the insight. So, but that's, and this is where automation can help. It can help yeah. kind of defend everybody's kind of profitability and allow people to bring down those uh, thresholds on claims. Mm. That's one of our kind of design intentions with some of the new things we're building. Hi guys, I just want to jump in and talk about a specific area of automation, which we often get involved in, which is the processing of supplier invoices or accounts payable automation as it's also known. Most businesses have invoices that they get sent from their suppliers. Essentially what our solutions do is they read those invoices, they extract key information from them, like purchase order numbers, supplier codes or supplier names. We then use that information and match that up against digital records. So can we find a purchase order number? Can we find a good receive note for that product? If we can, then we can match it up, we can reconcile it, and we can automatically post that into your finance system. What makes us different is that we configure our solutions to be specific to your organization. So we're not an out the box, plug it in and see what you get. We actually understand more about your processes, your organization, your supplier base, and we configure the solution to meet those requirements. Hopefully that's enough to pique your interest. If it is, get in touch, let's have a chat. So I know you, you talked when we spoke previously around um, big focus on cloud, understandably. So is this, yeah. is this a product which already exists on premise, which you're replatforming to cloud, or is this a brand new greenfield build? Brand new greenfield cloud native product. We've had kind of like a manual claims processing part of our trade management platform for, for years. Mm. Um, but when we realized that this was a pain point for every consumer product goods company. We thought, actually, this is an opportunity to build something in the cloud, cloud native, running on a hyperscaler, mm. um, that therefore makes it easier for people to deploy. Um, and we've set it up so it integrates with our platform, but we've created it with open APIs so you can connect it to other platforms as well. And because it's cloud, it's continually evolving. So it's so like we added the OCR capability in the last couple of months. Uh, to broaden the number of claims that we can process. And because it's developed cloud native with modern agile techniques, we drop code to it every two weeks. So Brilliant. working and we're building it actually rather than sitting in an SAP ivory tower and just kind of going, <laughs> let's imagine what people want. 
we actually, we actually spent time working directly with customers and we said, right, we've had this idea. We've started working on it. This is where we think we want to go with it. Let's co-innovate together. Bring us your business challenges, your problems, your sample data, and the pain points that your internal stakeholders have got. Let's interview them all. Let's do loads of design thinking sessions. Let's design from the UX kind of down and actually produce something that's quick to use, easy to use, something that people want to use that solves people's kind of like day-to-day challenges. Yeah. So, so there will be, I mean, you've given us a, a snapshot of it, of it there, but there will be businesses and people watching this that are fascinated around how software gets developed. And I think yeah. you've previously talked me through that model, which I think is brilliant. So if you could just talk us through right from day zero through to getting a product on the market as an MVP, what yeah. what does that process look like? Yeah, so so for us, it, I mean, it starts uh, logically with a business case. So first of all, uh, you're not going to build anything unless it's it's commercially worth building. So mm-hmm. you have to spend time analysing the market, analysing the need, looking at the competitive space. Are you in a red ocean? Are you in a blue ocean? Are you doing something novel and innovative? Um, or have you got to build something that kind of outpaces existing competition? Um, but also who are the customers that would be interested in it and then Mm. define where you would start releasing that, which markets is it most relevant to, which customers is it most relevant to. So all that segmentation work, all that analysis work, that's where it starts. Um, And then we have a very robust process internally of kind of critiquing those business cases and analysing them and kind of going, okay, is this something really that um, does – meets that SAP goal of helping the world run better and improve people's lives, um, does it actually do that? Mm. So so we kind of start there. And once the business case is approved, actually teams get assembled to follow actually um, a process we uh, have worked on by looking at what is the state of the art in kind of the cloud development world. So everything goes into kind of like a design phase, first of all. And actually... I, I remember telling you about this. The the very first document we write in the demand phase is the press release for the ultimate delivery of that software. So because yeah. we thought that that's a really elegant way of thinking about how do you define your North Pole. So and if you're thinking about what is it that when we do the PR for this and we launch it to the market, what features does it need to have? What business benefits does it need to deliver to people? And define those day one. So, and then oh, use that. Yeah, I mean, use it as the guiding line. Yeah, it's that concept of start with the end in mind, isn't it? And if you understand where you want to end up, then you've got a better chance of getting there rather than just starting and seeing where you end up. Yes, that's it. It's 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 kind of, it's kind of. I mean, obviously, the analogy in the the difference between agile and waterfall is that uh, waterfall can uh, agile can sometimes very much like, like look like a drunk person walking home, <laughs> kind of veers uh, off in different directions, but does eventually correct in flight and eventually gets there. Absolutely. So it, it allows it allows you to accommodate that, which is absolutely what should happen because when you're doing this with co-innovation partners, you will find yourself encouraged to work on things that you may not initially have considered. So and actually very actively reprioritizing things and kind of going, okay, that's a good idea. We should pursue that one. Or that is a bigger pain point than we realized. Mm. We need to go and spend more time focusing on there. We start a lot of that in the design phase. So because we recruit co-innovation customers in that design phase. And um, only once we feel that we've got a solid 
thought through proposition for the solution, will we move forward then next into the next phase, which is our labs phase. And the labs okay. phase is where we actually start doing things like prototypes. So even before we get anywhere near writing a line of code, we'll actually produce a clickable model of what we think um, the first vertical slice of the solution should look like. And some, in some cases, some broader capability as well. So we kind of know we have an aspiration for where we want to be uh, minimum viable release. Um, then we also have an aspiration for where we want to be then 12 months on, 24 months on, 36 months on. And we'll build a prototype so it at least can demonstrate a, a working flow for, for that very first release and also some of the other bits in there as well. So that we can paint a compelling vision. So we can then work with those co-innovation customers and say, this is what we have in mind. This is also how we think it's going to work. Um, and we put it in front of real users as well. So we get the feedback directly from people about how easy it is to use, how pleasant it is to use. And at this point, we'll be using mocked up data. So, okay. But usually at this phase, we'll also ask our co-innovation customers to share data with us as well. So lots of legal work, lots of data protection agreements. Um, but we then want to show them some idea of what that tool will look like with elements of their data. We're also looking for surprises in that data in terms of its structure and its content as well. Is, and, it, is it difficult to get co-innovation customers to be involved in this process? Because I don't imagine it hmm. takes time, it takes resource. And how do you convince them that it's a good thing for them to do? Yeah, yeah. It's... Um, we love all of our co-innovation customers because they're coming on a journey with us. And the benefit for the co-innovation customer is that they end up with a solution that absolutely should hit the key pain points that they've shared with us. So that can give them first mover advantage in something that's radi either radically new or a significant evolution over kind of previous generations. So mm. there's... there's um, one of the benefits is the ability to have something that, while it's not customer-specific development, it's actually building products that better fit and suit and solve a business challenge than possibly something else already existing in the market. Or yeah. if the customer wanted to fund building it themselves, one of the benefits of doing it with somebody like us in co-innovation is we don't charge anybody for that. So the cost on the customer's on the customer side is just time. So we're funding all of the development and actually what we're, what we're really looking for is validation along the way. And actually it's allowing customers to um, come up with whole new ways of solving problems that if they wanted to try and fund themselves would be prohibitively expensive mm. um, because we're also doing this at scale. It's like we'll, we'll involve three, four, five, six co-innovation customers. One of the things that we find is sometimes we have sessions with customers individually, and sometimes we bring them together. And so you get a certain degree of shared wisdom, but actually we're also finding that those customers want to learn from each other as well. Yeah. I mean, in some cases, um, if the customers are competitors, we don't put them together. So, okay. But normally, normally when we're putting a co-innovation group together, we'll look for companies that are, aren't going to be in that environment. So that said, we have co-innovated solutions before now, like SAP Direct Distribution, where we did it with both of the big beverage brands in the world, Coke and Pepsi. So we wow. have co-innovation sessions separately <laughs> with both of them, but they're, they're both contributing to the same solution. So yeah, now there's two businesses you don't put in the same room. No, absolutely. Uh, okay, so we've got a, a thin slice of functionality, which you defined yeah. as the MVP. We've got co-innovation customers being part of this process. 
at this point, is this built in kind of designs or have we written code at this point? Have we actually built the MVP at this point? So, well, by this point, we've got to a clickable prototype. Yeah, and okay. The clickable prototype and the feedback from customers so far feeds into another decision point, which is we have a product council that decides go or no go on should we actually now build this. So okay. business case exists, North Pole exists, prototype exists, input from customers exists, and we've got kind of commitment for ongoing involvement from those co-innovation customers. That all needs ticks in the box. Okay. So, and there's still um, no financial commitment from those co-innovation customers at this point? No financial commitment apart from them just kind of uh, spending time with us. And, you know, yeah. that can be every two weeks, can be every month. So, okay. And sometimes there are like periods of activity where we might need, uh, you know, a couple of meetings during one week. And then it might go quiet for three or four weeks. So, mm -hmm. But we always try and be really respectful of people's time. So we try and keep it in kind of like the one or two hour meetings like every two weeks. That kind of thing. So, okay. so everybody has to arrive fully prepared to kind of go, right, we're going to take you through <laughs> this part of the prototype this week. You go from this part of the process to that part of the process and just being really clear and transparent. So, okay. And, and is, is the one product manager on your side that is that owns all of this process? Yeah, so normally there is, for each of the individual products, there's one lead product owner. Okay. And they will sometimes have a team of product managers underneath them. So because okay. some of those solutions will break down into subcomponents as well. Yeah. Um, so like in our revenue growth optimization engine, we have somebody responsible for the forecasting engine. And we have somebody responsible for the optimization engine. So okay. um, but there is then one person response that they report to. And they also themselves report to our head of revenue growth management. So because actually what we're doing is we're building several component solutions and actually in future years, we're going to slot them all together as okay. well. That makes sense. So you've, you said earlier, you've ticked those five boxes. I think you counted off. Um, what happens after that? So after that, it goes, uh, assuming we decide we're going to build it, mm. uh, it then starts building a development team around there. So that is then setting up the engineering practices and processes. Um, actually, the intelligent trade claim solution I mentioned earlier, where we're automating the processing of trade claims, is really where we first kind of bedded in some of these mm. as working practices and processes. So it is about spinning up all the development environments. It's about creating the approaches to kind of like continual innovation. So it's putting in the automation solutions for deployments, um, setting up all of the tenants, the structure of tenants, working out. Um, at this point, I start thinking about how do we charge people for this? How many tenants do they get? How big are those tenants? How much data will they put into them? Um, and some of that evolves as the engineering design evolves because the engineering design will think about, well, what cloud services are we using? Mm, uh, yeah. Fundamentally, so that we're tightly coupled with SAP's backend, we use SAP's business technology platform, BTP, because that brings a whole wealth of integration into connectivity, pre-built pre components like you need a workflow process, got one of those. You need an OCR process, got one of those. Um, but equally, sometimes we'll be going out and looking at other third-party cloud components that need to go in there as well. So there's a lot of kind of architecture and engineering work happens early doors. And then it's down to um, bi-weekly based delivery of sprints. And that goes through delivery of kind of like initial setup of code, moves towards the development of a series of alpha releases and then it moves to a series of beta releases and when we get to the beta releases is where 
we will start working in much more detail with the co-innovation customers to actually load their data into the beta release um, to actually road test it and show people how that solution works with their own data as well. And we'll come back onto that product in a second, but do you do you get many initiatives that fail at that hurdle of those five boxes that you ticked or do most by this point, they're, they're mature enough to think, well, we're, we're probably going to get on and do this? Yeah, usually most get, usually we've done enough kind of thinking and testing of the idea that if we exit the labs phase and we move into build, um, we know there's a market for it. We know there's an appetite for it. We know there's going to be enough customers interested in it and we will then go and build it. So that, that's usually from the original business case to the end of that phase is somewhere between six to nine months. So it's had it's had a fair bit of thought put into it. A few eyeballs on it. That. Yeah. Okay. And uh, do you have a period of time of from the point where you start building, you want to get something into the market? Is it is there a line in the sand where you say we need to get something in by X? Yeah. What what we like to do from the point where we start that engineering effort, ideally, we want to try and get the minimum viable release out in something like twelve months. So, uh, which we, defines our thinking usually on what is the most minimum kind of marketable capability that we need for that initial release. Mm. Um, but what, what we'll also be doing is looking at what is the roadmap beyond that. So and obviously, because it's agile development, committing to roadmap beyond about three or six months, it, you know, uh, it's big code of uncertainty. Things can yeah. vary significantly depending on where customers steer us or what challenges or what tech debt needs to get resolved. Um, but we've usually got a really clear definition of that first release. We want that to take about 12 months. And then from there, we're dropping code every either every two weeks or every four weeks, uh, iteratively growing that capability to meet kind of the original aspiration. Um, so and we kind of we have a view of at what point does it move? Uh, you know, our first releases we treat as what we call kind of restrictive release or incubation releases. Then it moves into an area of early adoption where it won't move out of early adoption until we've got five satisfied customers that are uh, can that will be references, for example. Okay. So we don't take it to mass market until we've got that in place as well, which means you've got to satisfy five very demanding customers before you're going to get any further out okay. with the product. So, so realistically, what's the the sort of timeline that you work to for it to be properly accessible by the mass market? It's commercially out there for people to use. So, we, is that still twelve months, or is that that's two years hence? Or yeah, well, it's usually twelve. It's usually, and it varies solution by solution depending on the size and scale mm. of the solution. But ideally, we're looking at um, another twelve months on from the minimum viable release. We yeah. would want to have something that's looking much more mature by yeah. that point so and and it, that can be 12 months it can also be 24 months as well yeah. but uh if it's taking longer than that then we've obviously taken a detour along the way so mm. we should be kind of delivering mature robust capability within kind of like a three-year time frame from having got started really guys i'm back i just want to jump in and talk about a specific area of automation that we get involved in which is called rpa also known as robotic process automation Basically what that does is it replicates human behavior. So we use software bots to replicate human behavior. So anywhere where you've got people or teams of people going onto different systems, copying, pasting data, going onto web applications or portals, downloading information, uploading information, any of that stuff tends to be rule-based. Go here, do this, do that. And instead of using your people to do that, actually you can use a bot to do that. So we can train, configure a bot to do exactly that process. 
It's a massive growth area, really exciting, exciting technology. Gartner talk about it as being the fastest growing enterprise technology in the market. Hopefully that's enough to pique your interest. If it is, get in touch. Let's have a chat, see if we can help. SAP, one of you know, the, the great software businesses in the world. Um, is, is Agile a new concept to SAP or is, it, is this a way that they've been working for a long time? Um, not totally new. So, okay. and we've, we've actually, interesting, we, we have a really big focus internally on new, new ways of working and kind of unlearning kind of previous development practices and processes and adopting both new work methods and new ways of, of developing software as well. So this is a transition that's been happening in SAP really earnestly for about 15 years. And right. we're at the point where everything is transforming to cloud. So whether it's core ERP capabilities um, into these individual solutions we're building that are industry specific, they're all being built cloud native, they're all being built agile, and they're all being built with co-innovation customers. It is the way to build enterprise software going forward. Yeah, I guess the, the challenge is you've got such a rich history and so many years spent building on-premise solutions that to then rebuild that in the cloud is a challenge. Is that fair? Yeah. Yeah, it's absolutely fair. It is a challenge. It's about having very sensibly looking at the process and kind of going, let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater, mm -hmm. uh, but let's leverage all of the things that we've done historically that are good um, and then build on top of them. So, mm -hmm. so, I mean, we have 50 years worth of completely solid core in everything that's been done in the ERP. I mean, it has a bewildering number of kind of interfaces and processes and capabilities and uh, you're tapping into all of that accumulated brilliance over many years. It's like some of the solutions we do kind of go, right, we've got to make the financial parts of this absolutely integrate rock solidly through BTP. Fortunately, people have already built most of that element mm. of integration capability. So you're just building on top of that. You're standing on the shoulder of giants in many cases in this. Sorry, apt phrase, yeah. Yeah. I mean, very. I mean, there are some very big shoulders in terms of what SAP's delivered to the world of software and keeping businesses running, and continues to do so. This is just the next evolution of how do we continue to build solutions in a way that suit customers, that um, are delivered in a way that it really, really solves business problems. So not just the imagined problems that are kind of like passed down through multiple chains of whispers, mm. um, but actually really solving the problems with real customers. So, Where, where do you think SAP will be in 10 years' time? In terms of um, yeah. what we've just described, or do you think there'll, is, there a, is there a future vision for SAP that's different from what you've just described? I, th I think it's it will be kind of evolving refinement of kind of that position. I mean, it, mm. it will remain the core central mission to SAP to help the world run better and improve people's lives. It, um, that is just the red thread that runs through everything that we do. I mean, we have a big focus on making all of our solutions as sustainable as possible. So in my world of like trade and revenue growth management, we're always thinking of, okay, it's, it's about selling greater volume of product, but we're also looking at how do we sell greater volume of the right product? And how do we encourage people that if you're rethinking your price pack architecture, maybe now is the opportunity to also rethink about the packaging of that. So if you're changing the pack size of something, it can spin off a side process with our responsible design and production 
solutions that says, okay, let's let's trigger a system running parallel process to this to go off and say, can we source using things like our, our Ariba network, can yeah. we source more biodegradable componentry that goes in that packaging? So it's about linking, and this is more of where we're going as well. It's about making something greater than the sum of its parts. It's about taking an existing process that could be improved with a sustainability perspective and also building the tools and solutions that can support that as well. So it's another of our industry cloud solutions is this responsible uh, design and production tool. And we can absolutely link it into other parts of these processes. So when people going through their product lifecycle or PLM management processes can kind of go, actually now is a perfect opportunity to reconsider um, how we're going to package some of these things or how we're going to recycle the packaging as well. Mm. So is sustainability is something we've touched on a few times on the podcast, actually. Is that there's a driving requirement around sustainability from the retail market? You're definitely really, seeing that. Yeah, definitely seeing it. It really is. So both both fiscally enforced through growing legislation and taxation are mm-hmm. able to be able to account for the materials that they use and the amount of waste that's being produced, mm-hmm. but also from the demand from consumers as well. Consumers, right. at the end of the day, consumers have been voting with their wallets and their feet to buy products that are more ethical uh, or more sustainable. So balanced, of course, with we're still operating, obviously, in a world at the moment of increased inflationary pressure. Mm. So still making products that suit people's economic circumstances, whilst also not costing the planet. That's absolutely part of what SAP is trying to do with all of its enterprise solutions. Uh, and one thing, another thing we talk about as well, sustainability is is talent and you know the the importance and sometimes how difficult it is to to recruit, retain talent, particularly in the yeah. world of software at the minute. Yes. What's what's SAP's view on that? How are they approaching that whole recruitment and retention of software talent? By being a thoroughly excellent employer, so, <laughs> <laughs> and and that's both in in terms of. Uh, obviously, the pandemic changed loads of the ways in which people want to work or like to work. So mm-hmm. we have uh, a, a, an approach called Pledge to Flex, which allows kind of people to agree actually how they want to work. Do they want to work mostly remote? Do they want to work in an office? And we actually have great internal tools for collaboration, um, but we also have superb office locations. So mm-hmm. the cloud teams that I'm working with on innovating these new consumer products uh solutions they're based in newport beach in california um which you know that we we look for where is the talent for some of the things that we want to build so it's pretty close to caltech right it's yeah. just you know although to be fair it means sometimes we're vying for resources who are going shall i go and work in enterprise software or shall i go and do the visual effects for the mandalorian up in <laughs> so <laughs> although, although, I mean, slightly very different skill set, but it, it means that we're looking for where are the environments where the talent exists. And that team, while it's based in Newport Beach, is working with teams in um, China and in India and in Eastern Europe and in Western Europe as well, actually, and in Canada. So, wow. um, so you're properly tapping into that kind of global global talent pool. Yeah, absolutely. And making that global talent pool work harmoniously together as well is mm. uh, everybody inside SAP is, is brilliant at kind of working in a diverse workforce and very mm. kind of understanding and respectful of that. Because um, people say to me, you know, I've actually been in SAP now, uh, four, actually four years this week. And they say, wow. what, do you, what do you enjoy the most? And I kind of go, it's the people. It, mm. it sounds cliche, but it is genuinely true. 
everybody I work with is great. So mm-hmm. I learn new stuff from them uh, on a daily basis. Hopefully they learn new stuff from me. So we have very set up processes for how you kind of bring on early talent, um, but also how you can get mentored by kind of more senior people as well. And just the opportunity to embrace interesting things. Uh, it's giving people interesting challenges, kind of great working environment and supportive colleagues. That ticks a lot of boxes. Absolutely. No, I completely agree. Um, and last last question, really. Um, the podcast is called Tomorrow's Workplace today. So we, we tried to cast our mind forward. And again, you've touched on some of this, but we tried to cast our mind forward 10 years and think, how are people going to be working? What's, what's the workplace going to look like in 10 years time? So is Elon Musk going to get his way and everyone's coming in and sleeping in the factory? and Or, or is it going to look different? I just wonder what your view looks like. So interestingly, I think... Uh, I saw a presentation last week in an event where people were kind of going through the impact of the pandemic has, I mean, you, you can look at, I, I saw this brilliant kind of hilarious video of somebody saying, okay, team, we've got a date <laughs> for our return to office. <laughs> so it's followed by all of the possible range of reactions that that might provoke from, uh, but mostly with people kind of going, yeah, uh, how about Tuesdays and Thursdays to I quit to, um, <laughs> office <laughs> do we still have those um, but it's that kind of hybrid working environment that i think will be ever more important so i think we're going to see still some degree certainly in the world of it and technology and enterprise software it's different obviously in different environments but it's always been uh, something that well supports kind of remote working and people being able to be uh, work kind of to some extent wherever they want. Mm-hmm. But you can't be face-to-face human interaction as well. So it's striking the right balance between those. And everybody's experimenting with it to some extent at the moment. Um, mm-hmm. But having the ability to make sure that people maintain a healthy work-life balance but also are able to be intimately connected with their colleagues when they need to be, I think is what's going to define that future workplace. So so it still needs to be physical places and locations that actually get the best out of people in terms of having the right facilities, the right tools, the right equipment and the right support around people, Um, but also recognising that people need to be able to work whenever they are and wherever they are as well. No, I quite agree. As a, as a man that does come in the office most days, um, you can do stuff like this and it and it works fine. But then you, I also love getting in front of a whiteboard, sketching stuff out and building that person-to-person relationship. So it's find, finding the best of both. Yeah, that's it. I mean, it's some of the stuff we do in our Newport Beach office, it only works when people are physically there. So mm. it's like when we're working with our co-innovation customers, we're kind of like, we'll do most of this remote, but we invite you a couple of times a year over to California. I mean, it's like, oh, such, such yeah. hard, such hard. Invite me to California. Oh, hardship. I'm I'm yeah. volunteering now to be a co-innovation partner for the next, <laughs> next time you're going to do some work for an automation consultancy. Yeah. I, I, I tell you. The only problem with that office is it literally is overlooking kind of uh, a uh, a port with loads of lavish yachts in it. So it's really distracting if you if so you have to you deliberately have to put your back to the window with the ones you can stare out for hours, kind of going, who owns that yacht? <laughs> to be fair, um, my office is opposite a Porsche garage, so I do occasionally turn around and just think, one one day, 
One yeah, day. One day. One day. <laughs> one day we'll get there. So. Good stuff. I'm, we're going to leave it there. Um, Paul, thank you very much for joining us. That's that's brilliant. Really insightful view into SAP's business and and the way that you guys develop products, which is which is brilliant. Yeah, fantastic. Thank you, Steve. It's been an absolute pleasure. I mean, it's always good catching up with you. Right, guys, so sorry to jump in here, but my, my chief content wizard has insisted that I stop and ask for a favour yet again. Uh, so apparently about 70% of the people watching are not actually subscribing or following us on our channels. So please, come on, what are you doing? Help us out. You're having your cake and eat it. So yeah, apparently there's a bell to press. So press the bell, click subscribe, and please help us on our journey. Thank you very much.